Good morning. Well, we're still all kind of getting used to this new schedule. Uh, I want to, somebody out here pounce on me at the end of this message if I don't remember to pray for the potluck, okay? So just just uh, remind me to do that. I'll probably forget. Well, I am uh, the welcomer and the prayer. I'm still getting used to that, so... Let me just uh, let me just pray, dear Father. This morning, I ask that you would open our eyes that we may see more clearly the magnitude of your gift to us in Jesus Christ, and that we may be filled with the hope that is our birthright in Him. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. How's your hope these days? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, that God intends for us to have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil. When you wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, do you have hope that is sure and steadfast? Is your life spent with an enduring sense of encouragement, with confidence that, that marvelous, amazing things lay ahead of you because you and Jesus share the same inheritance? Or are your, are your mornings and evenings spent in dread of what the next day might bring? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God intends for your days this side of heaven to be filled with an unshakable optimism that's based on His promises and His gift given to you in Christ. Today we're going to take a deeper look at the magnitude of that gift. Last week in Romans chapter 4, Paul gave us a vivid look at the faith by which Abraham was justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. The essence of what Paul showed us did not focus on the quality of Abraham's faith, but rather on the one in whom Abraham placed his faith, on the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul finished chapter 4 by declaring that we, as New Testament saints, are justified the same way Abraham was, by believing in him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This morning, we have the happy assignment of pondering the marvelous benefits that God has given to us together with that gift of justification. 
God didn't redeem us just to give us a free pass into a place called heaven. He purchased us and he justified us in order to draw us into blessed relationship and fellowship with himself. And it is in that glorious relationship that we find the very essence of life and of blessing here and hereafter. Our justification, the imputation of God's own righteousness to our account, is only the beginning of a vast storehouse of incomparable blessing that God has prepared for us who are now his children, his inheritance, his own treasured possession. This morning, Paul's going to tell us about the benefits of our justification. We're going to see that we are at peace with God that we stand firmly in the grace of God, that we boast in the hope of the glory of God, that we even boast in our tribulations, and that God has given us a hope that never disappoints or puts to shame. Next time that that I'm up here, which will be two weeks from now, We'll finish that list of the benefits of our justification. And we'll see in verses 6 through 11 that we who were enemies are now reconciled to God. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. (laughs) That's a lot of good stuff in five verses. Now there's a very significant transition right at the beginning of chapter 5. Marked by the words, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have... Paul is moving beyond the great theme on which he has been dwelling all the way from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 25. And that theme, of course, was how men become justified. First, how they don't become justified, and then how they do. How men become declared righteous in the eyes of God. And now he's moving to a different focus, and that is what are the benefits that come to us because of that justification? Now, I should mention here that Paul is not finished yet talking about the gift of justification. In verses 12 to 21 of chapter 5, he'll have quite a bit more to say about that gift and how God has provided it in Christ. And then in chapter 6, he'll move to the matter of sanctification, of how righteousness, the righteousness of God, is worked out in our lives. But here in the first 
11 verses of chapter 5 and this morning, the first five, Paul takes that gift of justification that he's been talking about for so long in this, in this book and he shows us what else is inside that package. The central question that this marvelous passage answers is what has changed for us who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ? Verses 1 and 2 are theologically loaded. The words justified, faith, peace, grace, hope, glory, God, and our Lord Jesus Christ occur in two verses. Paul is overflowing here with thankfulness to God for all that we have been given in Christ, for the incomparable benefits that are guaranteed to us because we have been justified. The first of these marvelous benefits that Paul raises is peace with God. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, later in this passage, he's going to focus on one aspect of peace, and that's reconciliation. The removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship with God. But at this point, he doesn't use the word reconciliation. He uses the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament word shalom, peace. That word speaks of peace in a broad sense. It speaks of well-being in every aspect of a person's life. And it speaks of a well-being that comes only through a right relationship with God. James 1.17 says, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we are now and forever in a condition with the true God of peace. The God who is the one and only source of real blessing in every aspect of life, both here and hereafter. Paul's description in 118 through 320 of man's depraved condition apart from Christ painted a starkly different picture. An existence devoid of peace. According to chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, he said that apart from Christ, we were filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. We were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, Unloving, unmerciful. Not a very pretty picture. In chapter 3, verses six, uh, 17 and 18, 16 to 18, he said, Of every man, of all mankind, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Before we were justified by faith in Jesus, our lives were characterized by the opposite of shalom, of peace. We were miserable and wretched. We were at enmity with God and with each other in the worst possible way. 
The only kind of well-being that we knew was a sham. It was an illusion built on a lie, a self-deception, a denial of the truth of God. It definitely was not well with our souls. But now, having been justified by faith, it is well with us in the grandest sense of the word well. And that's what Paul wants us to understand in this passage. Having given to us his own righteousness, God has now opened the floodgates to pour out toward us the surpassing riches of his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. The peace or well-being about which Paul speaks here is all about relationship. It's not found in a situation. It's found in a person. And that's why Paul calls it peace with God. As we saw repeatedly in our study of the covenants, biblical peace is only found through blessed relationship and fellowship with our Father. At the end of verse 1, Paul celebrates... Get back to it. He celebrates the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is the one through whom we now find ourselves in that marvelous relationship and situation of peace. And it has always been thus. In Isaiah 53, the prophet looked forward nearly 700 years to the death of Jesus the Messiah, and he said, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we esteemed or considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our peace, for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That word well-being in Isaiah 53.5 is shalom. Jesus purchased this peace with God for us at the price of his own life's blood. He didn't make peace possible for us who believe in him. He made it certain. He made it irrevocable. We who believe in Jesus Christ are and always will be at peace with God. Verse 2 continues with the thought that it is through Jesus Christ our Lord that we have all the many blessings of justification. And it goes to the second thing that's in that package with justification, and that is that we stand in grace. Paul says, the last verse, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom? Through Him. Also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word introduction is really the word access. And I believe that's a better translation. Christ has secured not just our introduction to step into the realm of God's grace, but he has secured our abiding and everlasting access to stand firmly in that realm. The phrase, the grace in which we stand in Romans 5, 2, is as sweet a sound as these ears have ever heard. God's grace is his unmerited favor. We who have been justified by faith in Jesus have become the objects of God's overflowing 
kindness, of His favor. We are the recipients of every good thing and every perfect gift. Ephesians 1.3 says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And God hasn't made us the objects of His grace temporarily or with conditions. He's made us to stand in that grace eternally. We who were of so wretched an estate are now firmly established in His grace. Unmoved and immovable because of Him who makes us to stand. Paul will say shortly that the hope we have in God does not disappoint. We are at peace with God. We stand in His grace. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In the second part of verse 2, Paul introduces the first of three things in chapter 5 in which he says we now exult. And the word translated exult is the word that's generally translated boast. It's the same root word that occurred in 3.27 and 4.2 when Paul was speaking in very negative terms about our unfounded boasting in our own works. See, we formerly boasted in the very thing that ensured our condemnation, our deeds. <laughs> but now, having been justified by faith in Christ, we boast instead in hope of the glory of God. The word hope implies something not yet fully realized, right? While God constantly glorifies Himself in a myriad of ways, in all of His dealings with His creation, there is a future aspect to the unveiling of the glory of God that has not yet been fully realized. Paul speaks often in this epistle of that future event, the unveiling of the glory of God. In chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. And in that same chapter, chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, he gives us a magnificent picture of the nature of godly hope. He says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The hope that we have from God has as its object something for which we are waiting. Something for which we must persevere. Something we can't fully see or lay hold of just yet. And the hope of the glory of God is uh, is something well worth the wait. Something that Paul speaks about in almost giddy terms. <laughs> so what does it mean to boast in the hope of the glory of God? Well, first and foremost, it means that our chief concern and that which gives us the greatest cause for rejoicing and exultation is God's glorification of Himself. As we discussed at several points already, the entire spiritual and moral decline of mankind started in Romans 1.21 with the failure of men to honor God as God or to give thanks. Now, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our response to God is the exact opposite of the world's response. We desire earnestly 
to see his name exalted and his true character unveiled. Instead of suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness, we joyfully proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 And we were talking a little bit about this uh, at our breakfast on Wednesday morning. The world looks at us and it thinks we're absolutely insane because we speak in glowing terms about the glory of one we can't even see. Even the very notion of delighting in the exaltation of someone outside of ourselves is pretty much foreign to this world, except maybe the exaltation of someone that's dearly loved, like a, a child or a spouse. Otherwise, the exaltation of other people tends to make us envious, jealous, resentful. But for us to be beside ourselves over the thought of the glory and exaltation of the invisible God is complete lunacy to this world. But that's fine, of course, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one that since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. But does the fact that we boast in the hope of the glory of God mean that our only concern is that God is glorified even if it's at our expense? Sometimes it sounds to me like that's the attitude some modern preachers think we're supposed to have. But I find that way of thinking pretty far from the mark presented in God's word. God has gone to great lengths to tell us repeatedly and emphatically that that which glorifies him blesses those who belong to him by faith. He didn't make us his treasured possession so that he could get glory at our expense. He has the right to, but that's not what he says he does. He made us his treasured possession so that we could share in his glory. In Romans 8, 16 to 18, don't have it up. He says, there it is. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider, this is when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is unfathomable to us, but the Bible says to us that we will be glorified with Christ. The glory that's to be revealed to us is not the glory of God exclusive of our well-being. It is also the glory that he has chosen to give to us. Now, of course, just as with the righteousness that we, just as the righteousness that we possess is his righteousness, just as the works that he does in us and through us are his works, so the glory that he, that he hands to us 
is His glory. And when we stand before His throne, we'll take the crown of righteousness and we'll cast it back at our Master's feet. We are at peace with God. We stand in grace. We boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we boast in our tribulations. Verses 3 and 4, not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. (laughs) We boast in our tribulations. And that's what my brother Orv calls the upside-down kingdom. When I was just a little more than a year old in the Lord, I was 18, freshman in college at Texas A&M, I went to a conference hosted by Campus Crusade for Christ. First thing like it, like it I'd ever been to. There were thousands of other college students there. One of the keynote speakers spoke on the subject of how God uses pain and difficulty in our lives to accomplish eternal good. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 provided one of the key passages to which he took us. I have to tell you, that message was a life changer for me. When I went into the auditorium that morning, I truly had no idea that the Bible contained promises like this. I thought that pain and difficulty were just necessary evils to be tolerated. I was certain that joy and pain were mutually exclusive, that you couldn't have both at the same time. I was certain that tribulation and well-being were opposite ends of the spectrum of life experience. But when I walked out of that room at the end of that message, the grid through which I saw and understood life had changed radically and forever. So needless to say, I consider these two verses to be very important. Paul doesn't say in verse 3 that we put up with tribulation until we get to heaven and finally get to put it behind us. He doesn't say we cope with tribulations. He says we boast in our tribulations, knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. To an 18-year-old kid who didn't grow up learning these realities... This wasn't just surprising information. It was paradigm-changing, life-transforming information. The only religious input I'd had prior to that day about pain and suffering was pretty much along the lines of a book that Rabbi Kenneth Kushner would write a few years later called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now, I was a believer that morning at that conference, so the good people part had already been shot down in my understanding. (laughs) I knew that I deserved only eternal condemnation from God, but that He had given me the gift of eternal life in Jesus. But the why bad things happen part, that part was still a big mystery when I walked in that day. I knew God was all-powerful, but I had no concept of why He allowed such grievous pain such injustice, such evil 
to happen in this universe even to those who believe in him. Paul's words here pulled back the curtain and they showed me a critical part to God's answer to that question that turned my understanding of things upside down, or rather right side up. We who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ get to know with rock-solid certainty that by God's doing, the difficulties of this life bring about perseverance, proven character, and hope. As I read and heard those words, they made perfect sense to me. And I can only thank the Spirit of God for that because before that I didn't have a clue. I was astounded that I hadn't put it together before that day. I knew that the only way you learn to persevere in anything is through time and testing, right? If it's quick and easy, perseverance doesn't even enter into the picture. And I knew, of course, that perseverance was a good thing to have. That it was part of proven character. But for whatever reason, I had not seen or put together that that's why God either allows or engineers great difficulty into the life of every believer. It can't work any other way. Faith that's never tested is faith that never grows. It never matures. It's the faith of an infant. A spiritual infant. James 1 tells us much the same thing about this matter that Paul does in Romans 5. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, James does not say, hang in there when you encounter various trials. They'll be, they'll be over soon. He says, consider it all joy. <laughs> Rejoice in the trials. Embrace the trials. Why? Because you know. It's interesting, in both those passages, Paul and James, knowing that, same words, knowing that, The testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance produces maturity, completeness as a child of God. It equips you to live powerfully, usefully, unshakably. The writer of Hebrews speaks very plainly, very bluntly, in fact, about the necessity, no, the inevitability of God's painful discipline in the life of every believer. Now, you may think there's a difference between tribulation that just sort of happens to you versus discipline that comes from the hand of God deliberately, intentionally. But the Bible, I believe intentionally, gives us no clear way to distinguish tribulation from discipline. And the outcome of both in the Bible is the same. So I don't see any real purpose or benefit in trying to trying to draw a line between the two. I'm not at all sure there is a line between the two when we have a correct view of the sovereignty of God. Here's what Hebrews tells us. 
You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all, that is all true sons, have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. For the redeemed of God, God's discipline is the mark of sonship. It's the guarantee that you're a legitimate child. The next three verses of that same passage say, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for what? He disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline seems for the moment to be sorrowful, not joyful. Yet those who have been trained, to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The outcome of submitting to the, uh, submitting to and enduring the painful discipline of God is the three things underlined up there. We live, we share His holiness, and we enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How about you? Do you want the peaceful fruit of righteousness? You cannot have it without difficulty persistent difficulty that demands perseverance. Do you want to share in God's holiness? You cannot get there without God's discipline. Painful, sorrowful discipline. Do you want to truly live? (laughs) There's only one way to consistently and powerfully lay hold of the life that is relationship and fellowship with God. And that's to be molded by Him into the image of Jesus Christ day by day over a long period of time. And God guarantees that that molding will at times feel like a scourging. But beloved, knowing how this works, how God very purposefully uses tribulation and discipline in your life is a liberating knowledge. It frees us from the fear that comes from thinking that our situation determines our well-being. But knowing how God uses tribulation in the lives of his children doesn't by itself get you there. The real question is, will you count the pain and sorrow that God sets in your path as a blessing or as a curse? 
Will you continue to live in fear of the tribulations that God says are destined to you as his child this side of heaven? Will you devote your time and energy to avoiding those difficulties? Or will you instead boast in them, rejoice in them? Will you embrace them as the mark of sonship, the evidence that God is faithfully at work in you to will and to work for his good purposes because because you are his child and he is a loving and faithful father? Will you bank on God's promise that he put those things into your life for your good so that you may come to share his holiness? Which of those two approaches is actually in keeping with reality? (laughs) Which of those approaches characterizes how you spend most of your days? Which of them must reign in your life if you were to know the unshakable joy and power and purpose for which God redeemed you? Has God been unclear about this? No. He's been crystal clear. May we who are the redeemed of Jesus Christ resolve by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to stop buying into the lie and to cling to the truth. At the end of Romans 5 verse 4, Paul says that the last link in the chain that comes about as we learn to rejoice in our tribulations, the outcome that God brings about in our lives as we learn perseverance and gain proven character is that we obtain hope. And we've already said that hope looks forward to something not yet fully realized. So what is this hope that we get by trusting that God is working through our tribulations for our eternal good? Well, the hope is that Eternal good. <laughs> See, God, God opens our eyes as we persevere in trusting Him. He opens our eyes to His eternal purposes. He, he allows us to see with eternal vision. And that gives us great hope because we start to live based on the certainty of what lies ahead. Paul already said in verse 2 that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And God promised that when Christ is ultimately glorified, so shall we be glorified together with him. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in a person. It's in our identity as children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We are heirs, you and I. You know what our inheritance is? It's the everlasting relationship and fellowship with God that belongs to Jesus Christ. He has drawn us in to a relationship that he's enjoyed for all eternity in the Trinity. That's our inheritance. That's our hope. In verse 5, Paul says, that hope does not disappoint. (laughs) The word disappoint is also translated put to shame. The promise that those who belong to God and follow after him 
will never be put to shame is actually a recurring and powerful theme throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets. It's one with which Paul would have been very familiar as a well-schooled Pharisee. In Isaiah 45, this passage blows me away. God is speaking to Cyrus, king of Persia, 200 years before Cyrus lived. God prophesied that Cyrus would come into power in the kingdom of Persia, and he prophesied that Cyrus would be the king who would send his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the walls of the city and the tabernacle, the temple, after 70 years of exile. Verses 5 through 7 are what God says to Cyrus, again, before he existed. And verses 15 to 17, I believe, are what Cyrus says back to God. God says to this pagan king, I am Yahweh, and there is no other besides me. There is beside me no other God. I will gird you, although you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. And Cyrus says back to God, Truly thou art a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated. All of them, the manufacturers of idols, will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You, Israel, will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. God declares that He alone is the one who creates both well-being, that's shalom, and calamity, the word for evil, the word for disaster, for painful judgment, does not mean God is evil. It means God is sovereign. There is no other cause of either well-being or calamity. He is the one who alone is the source of either blessing or curse, He says that those who turn away from him to worship idols will be put to shame and humiliated. But those who belong to God as his covenant children will not be put to shame or humiliated. And for how long is that promise valid? For all eternity. Isaiah 49 Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples and they, the pagan nations, will bring your sons, Israel, into their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders and kings will be your guardians and their princesses will be your nurses. They will bow down before you, bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hopefully wait for me, will not be put to shame. 
Those who do not belong to God or honor him will be put to shame. In fact, God says our exaltation will be at their expense. But those whose persevering hope is in the Lord will never be put to shame. That's exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans 5.5. Hope. Our hope in God that comes about as we boast in our tribulations. The hope that follows after perseverance as the outcome of proven character. This hope does not disappoint ever. Why does it not disappoint? Paul says in the rest of Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. (laughs) He's not talking here about our love for God. He's talking about God's love for us. He says three verses later that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word translated poured out is the same word Jesus used in Matthew twenty six twenty eight on the night of the first Lord's Supper when he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's the word that Jesus used in Luke 5.37 when he said, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be gushed out. And the skins will be ruined. The word poured out speaks of an effusive, unrestrained pouring out or gushing out. For us who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and who thereby stand firmly established in His grace. The love of God has been gushed out toward us, poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that the the love of God in us is in the form of a person, the Holy Spirit. He's with us always. Always. He's our helper. He's the one alongside of us. He's the one who who works in us that we might know God better and that we might work for His eternal purposes. I was going to, in conclusion, review the five points. There's a lot of there, there's a lot that's going on in this body. Things, a couple of things I learned about this morning that are very painful. There are people in this body who who struggle with feeling like they've been robbed of hope. This passage is all about the hope that's your birthright as a child of God. And Paul's saying no one can take it away from you. It has been secured for you. It is firm. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We are at peace with God. Nothing can shake that up. Nothing can, nothing can undo that. God wants, wants us to learn what it means to boast in tribulations. 
to rejoice in tribulations and difficulty. I think one of the things that is hardest for us to do because of our old nature and our old habit of thinking is to humble ourselves enough to believe that God means this, to believe that he actually does good, amazing, eternally good things through evil and pain and injustice that surrounds us. That's what he calls us to believe. You know, I, I, I pray that, that we won't take this lightly. This is very powerful stuff. When I was 18, this overturned my life. And it, and it has given me from that moment forward a confidence in God that I didn't have before that. In the midst of whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil may throw at me, and whatever God decides to engineer in my life to make me better for his purposes. Do I always respond appropriately <laughs> to those tribulations? No. No, I don't. But I know the truth. And that's huge. It's huge. I pray that if you're a believer here and you haven't ever been able or found a way to just believe God when he says that that's what he does through difficulty, I pray that you would believe him. You would commit to believe him now. It's a, it is a function of humility. It is us saying to God, I can't figure this out. You've told me what's true and I submit to it. I humble myself and I submit to it. And that becomes my grid. That becomes my the basis upon which I understand all that happens. Based on what you have told me, not based on what my eyes see, not based on what I feel. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your, your path straight. Father... I remember that day. I remember the weight that was removed from my shoulders when I walked out of that room, and I remember the encouragement that I knew. I knew it, that it was real, that it was true. There have been many days since then, Father, when I struggled with it, but I still know it. Lord, we who have been redeemed, we who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ have been given these amazing things. Teach us to lay hold of them, not to live as paupers when we're children of the King of Kings. Teach us to lay hold of them and to believe you and to rejoice, to rejoice daily. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.